Welcome to This Catholic Life, conversation about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show, that sensible, practical, and joyful is going to come under the microscope because we're talking about marriage. Marriage matters. A conversation about family life in the world where Catholic life mixes with marriage and family and what matters about being Catholic in this sphere. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Francine Parola. Hello, Peter. It's wonderful to be here. It's excellent to have you on board. We've had many good conversations over the years, and I hope this will be just another one of them. Byron and Francine Parola, I should mention, are directors of the Marriage Resource Centre and directors of Marriage Enrichment Seminar called Smart Loving. Is that right? Smart Loving Marriage? Smart Loving, yep. It was formerly Celebrate Love. Under both titles, I've uh, been shoving people your way and saying, go check out these guys as marriage resources, marriage preparation, but also mostly enrichment after marriage. It's not the only thing they've been up to. They've been, in the past, chairs of the Australian Catholic Marriage and Family Council and It's an advisory council of the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference, mostly because of their work in this area and the experience they bring to that, but in many other marriage preparation style circles, including the big conference called Renaissance of Marriage, which happens... Now, this is this is not so much a general conference, is it? It's for people who are involved in the marriage industry. Yeah, that's right. It's really a leadership development conference. So right. it's a gathering space for those that are working um, in the Catholic sector to promote marriage and family at all different stages, whether it's working in schools with youth, mm. um, your groups in parish life. I met all kinds of people at um, these conferences, though. They weren't necessarily professionals in this sphere. They were people who were just really passionate about marriage and they've seen the decline of marriage in their parishes and in their world. They really wanted to get involved. Yeah, that's right. And increasingly we're seeing more and more um, dioceses and parishes that are sending representatives from their congregations, their communities, Mm. to participate and to be energised in their mission and their ministry. So it's really, really delightful actually to have those uh, there because most of the people who are paid to work in this area in the church (laughs) actually do so on their own. They're often not doing it with their spouse. Yes. So it's a real delight to have couples coming as couples yeah. to the conference and bringing all the charisms of their relationship with them. You said the word alone there, and that's really um, the case in this area because you often feel like you're the only one in this area and, and there's a sort of a despair that builds up over time. And in some respects, it's been really handy to come across ordinary folk from the parishes because they still have that, that earnest desire to do something radical and new, whereas those of us who've worked in the, in the area for some time sort of we got to get in a rut and we kind of think this yeah. is all we can do kind of thing yeah it's so true it's it's i guess it's natural to bring uh, ambitions and goals and you know lofty objectives to the work that we do and we're almost always falling short in some capacity <laughs> there so it can be a little bit discouraging but it's so refreshing to have that energy and that really that innocence about a na- naivety mm. where they just kind of have no sense of the um, tragic experience that <laughs> makes us be a little more cautious or tentative in what we do. They come in with raw enthusiasm, which is uh, really good for all of us, I think, to get a dose of that every now and then. Speaking of ordinary people having raw enthusiasm, how did you guys get involved in this? Because you're not your backgrounds wouldn't have pointed to this particular field. We come from a long pedigree. <laughs> so Byron's parents, um, Ron and Mavis, uh, introduced Worldwide Marriage Encounter to Australia. Yes back in the day. That must have been almost 50 years ago now. Indeed. And they've been stalwarts of the, especially the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference. Yes, and yes. And other work in Australia and yes, marriage. Yes, I think they represented us in the Vatican at one stage, didn't they? They were 25 years on the um, Pontifical Council of the Family. Right. And um, 
So that was every... It was every year, I think, almost. They were back and forwards for that and and very conscientious in terms of um, applying the principles and the vision of Pope John Paul II Mm. uh, back down into the the diocesan and then the national level and the parish level. Um, So they brought Marriage Encounter to Australia. Our families were in the same parish. They recruited my parents for Marriage (laughs) Encounter Weekend um, and they subsequently both were involved with Antioch then. I was too young. Byron, right. Byron was one of the initiators of Antioch in, right. into the country. And my parents and Byron's parents were the two parent lead couples. I was, <laughs> you were doomed. You were doomed. I was too young. And so we've had just this long, long sort of, I guess, pedigree of, right. of witness and marriage involvement. My parents uh, prepared hundreds of mar- engaged couples mm. for, for marriage in our home. So we saw these engaged couples coming in. Mm. Um you know, week after week. But if we if we looked at it, your formal qualifications, which is unfortunately what most people normally look at. Now, clearly, that's an excellent preparation for work yes. in this area. But yeah. in terms of what you actually did for a job and and formal qualifications up to this point, it doesn't quite match this, does it? No, I did a, an undergraduate degree in science in physiology, so right. it, it, that's very helpful for aspects like fertility and so sure. on. I also studied a bit of psychology. I did a little bit more when I did my master's of religion at right. Fordham University. Lovely. So that kind of padded out Brings theology. It all in. Yeah. Then I did work in. Um, then I then it's been I guess self directed study. Um, since then, Byron's a PhD in biochemistry, so he's even <laughs> less qualified. But he is a doctor; that does help. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. That magic sort of um, preface at the beginning of the name does indeed. does help. Gets him privileged seating on planes and things yes. like that. They, they have this be- mysterious uh, academics seem to have this mysterious belief that having those letters makes you in some way better able to teach everything. Right, right. <laughs> just, and, and and he's not, not um, unencumbered by self-doubt in that <laughs> regard. <laughs> All right, let's leave that. I'm sorry, I'm being a little cynical here as someone who's uh, engaged in this work of academia. In terms of actually what we're getting involved for and why – I mean, why would we bother getting involved in marriage at all? I mean, it seems to be a very private thing and there's lots of criticism, for example, about Catholics getting involved in people. I keep your rosaries off my ovaries, that kind of slogan, or um, stay out of the bedroom. bedroom. And what what are you celibate people telling us all this stuff? In fact, I haven't heard too many celibates talk to me about the church's teaching on marriage. It's like a deathly silence from the pulpit on these issues. Really? You, You don't really hear much at all. The reason why we're um, really passionate um, is, well, firstly, is is we discern it and we feel very strongly that the Spirit is calling us into this work. And, mm. and every year about around this time, we have a, a re- re- revisit the past year. And I've, there's been some years where I've really begged God to say, give me something else to do. This is so frustrating. <laughs> give me something else. And he keeps sending me back. But I think one of the key things is that this the nuptial mystery is so embedded in our the redemption story. Like yes. it goes to the core of um, salvation. And Christ himself present, like even in the Jewish scriptures, there's these repeated references to the awaiting of the bridegroom. The Messiah was understood to be a bridegroom that yep. was going to come to the people. And Jesus spoke about himself as the bridegroom. Yep. So identifying himself as that long-awaited bridegroom. So it's so clear to us that without a strong marriage culture, the community cannot receive the salvation story fully. And even in a practical, like almost just straight up and down the line um, sociological sense in the health of our society, we know, I mean, we know that 
every person is better off if they have a stable home, a loving and stable home. Now, we need to say that clearly because just having a mum and a dad doesn't make it a loving, stable home. That's right. yep. So what we're talking about here is a loving, stable home. But the most common circumstances where that happens is where a mum and a dad are married to each other and they stay committed to each other for life. Mm. Um, now, there are, of course, exceptions and, and it's not to say you have to lock into that and in every case, even in abuse, of course you're not. We're, we're looking for a loving and stable home here. Mm-hmm. And to do that, it's not enough to just simply get married. Oh, absolutely not. And having worked with um, thousands of engaged couples over many years, uh, you see the whole spectrum. You get couples who are um, on on one hand on uh, to be celebrated and and held up as being very conscientious and focused on their relationship and and their spiritual preparation for the incredible commitment they're mm. about to take. And you get others that approach it with a sense of frivolity. It's all about the party and, <laughs> and we, you know, we're gently trying to guide them towards, you know, you might want to talk about some pretty important issues that are going to come up for you in marriage. And, um, but it's really often, hard to talk. I mean, I remember myself mm. before marriage, it, it's just almost impossible to think mm. beyond that date. Yes. It's interesting that... Um, when you try and talk to people about preparation for marriage, there's a, there's a resistance to it as if, oh, how dare you question my decision? This is my my most sacred decision of my inner And it's true. It's one of the biggest decisions you'll make is whether you're going to spend your life with someone. But when, we, when a priest fronts up and says, I want to give my life to the church, we spend seven years preparing them. Yep. And we spend, put them through all kinds of rigor and only about two thirds of them at most, maybe half get through that process because it's a discernment process. Um, I think Kevin Andrews in Victoria, they, he and his wife run a, a marriage prep thing. And he yeah. said, if we're genuinely about discernment, if we're helping people figuring out whether they should be married, some of them should be able to say, no, I'm not ready. This isn't yeah. the time. And given the, the divorce rates being what they are, you'd have to say that some of them probably should have thought about that at some stage. Absolutely. And I think there's often once they've made the decision to get married, they've had the um, engagement party. It's like they're on a high-speed train hurtling. <laughs> on rails. To, to, yeah, <laughs> towards the wedding. And it's really difficult at that point for them to say, hang on, mm. I want to get off or do I those need rails, pause Do those rails start earlier though? Because if people actually choose to live together, um, yep. it's it, you're on rails already. And so yep. once you get to a certain point, you've been living together for so long, there's kind of, for some of some people at least, there's an expectation that at a certain point you, you, it's easier just to get married than it is to say, yeah. hang on, this isn't yeah. going where I want it to go because there's all kinds of readjustment of life and friends and, mm-hmm. and circumstances which has to happen if you choose otherwise. So they just kind of slide into marriage. Yeah, very true. And in fact, some really interesting research from um, a fellow by the name of Scott Hanley on commitment. I don't know if you're familiar no. with his work. So he identified... Um, two types of commitment. He calls constraint commitment and dedicated commitment. And constraint commitment is the kind of commitment you get that is, um, I guess, a negative pressure to stay together. Right. So So it just costs too much. It costs too much. And the longer you're together and the more you've enmeshed your life, the bigger those costs are. So if you're living together, you break up, somebody's got to find a new place to live. You've got to sort out who gets which pieces of furniture. who's going to pain in the butt to do all the legal stuff. Oh, you've got to go back into the dating market and, you know, who wants to go there, that kind of thing. So the longer you're together, the more those constraints build up. Um, his caution, so he says, constraints are not all negative. Like they can work positively for you because every marriage goes through ups and downs and sometimes it's the constraints that are the only things that can keep you together. Right. And so it's not all negative. They actually have a positive function as well. 
the dedicated commitment is the sort of the stuff that comes from those, I guess, um, deeper or higher values in ourselves. It's the decisions we make um, to for the future of the marriage. So valuing, you know, the future of the relationship yep. and prepare, being prepared to make sacrifices for the other person. But also investments in the future. Yes, long-term thinking. And, and those are the hallmarks of a dedicated commitment. And so uh, when I was in marriage um, office in Melbourne, someone people used to ring me all the time because there was a requirement that you had to go and do marriage prep before you got mm-hmm. married in the Catholic Church and they'd say things like what's the cheapest and shortest marriage preparation we could find <laughs> I say well there's this one for $110 over there and oh you think oh, I've just spent 40 grand on a wedding do you think I've got $110 to spend <laughs> yes, yeah, and yeah. I rather rudely apparently would say um well the marriage is one day and this is an investment in the rest of your life yeah so surely you should, the you know <laughs> It's not that big a deal. Anyway, they didn't we, usually appreciate that. We had many, we've had many conversations along those lines, usually frustrated, you know, after we put the phone down, like, <laughs> can you believe it? So one day I actually suggested to a bride who was complaining about the cost of the course was, I said, okay, look, that's okay. Just give us 10% of what you're spending on your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> there was silence on the end of the phone. She no doubt was spending, you know, a couple of thousand dollars on the shoes or something ridiculous. And <laughs> well, which which tells, and the fact that that she would never even have thought to question that tells us exactly where our society is putting the values. It's something we were talking about before we came on. Is that if some people in the Western society, not all, but some, have started to view marriage as if it's like a capstone project, as if mm. you get everything else in order first. I mean, there's people I know who won't get married because. It will cost them, they think, you know, this many tens of thousands of dollars, about 50 to 60 grand, some of them are talking Mm -hmm. about. Apparently the average is over 40 now. Yeah, that's right. Just insane. And if they're trying to save up for a house, that's not a realistic investment. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. the fact that they could do a marriage much, much cheaper than that is not on their radar because it's, it's a social thing that we yes, have to bridge yes. this sort of… And often girls particularly have been dreaming and planning, like girls as young as, you know, 12 and 13 have got mm. their Pinterest boards, which has got all their wedding pins, you know, <laughs> they've got their dresses and their flowers and their table arrangements. Because everyone wants to be a And their colour scheme. And so to kind of walk away from that that dream that they've held for and nurtured for such a long time is yep. a really um, hard thing for them to come to terms with. It's interesting, though, that in such a cynical society and people are prepared to live together and ignore the ideas or deals of marriage for, you know, that have been around for centuries, they, they're still holding out for the dream. Mm-hmm. There's still some kind of element of it. And when I was a minister back in the Lutheran church, we had a beautiful little Gothic revival church. It looked like a church. And we would get constant people coming up and saying, can we use your church? Can we use your church? And you'd find out they're not religious or they're part of a, a church that meets in a warehouse. And But when it came to the wedding, everything had to look churchy because that was the ideal. That was the, the image they had in their heads. Look, and that's true even in the Catholic sector within the Archdiocese of Sydney where we are. There's about three or four churches that get something like <laughs> 80 to 90% of the weddings. And they're not all parishioners. No. They're mostly coming from different parts of Sydney. That's not a bad urge, though. I mean, we might talk about the the proper preparation and and maybe it would be better if they had a a better understanding of marriage before they got into it. But the actual urge to to look for that kind of ideal is not a bad thing. That's right. I mean, beauty, we're naturally attracted to beauty. And that's Mm. part of where we can discover and and find God. And it's one of the ways we give praise and glory to God is by... you know, using our gifts to create beauty and to appreciate it. So it's, and the it's beauty, a good instinct. The beauty here, even though they're talking about dresses and, and church buildings and stuff, the beauty that they're reaching for is actually a beauty beyond that into the ideal of marriage, the actual ideal of that soulmate idea. 
I'm a little bit cynical about the Disney version of romance because I just, I just don't think it exists and I mean, people delude themselves into this idea. Romance is self-sacrificing love and mm-hmm. it, it's ugly usually. Like mm-hmm. Last night it was me getting up at two when the young lad was screaming his head off and I, I was oh. trying to save my Ouch. wife a little bit of sleep. And yeah. That, you know, that didn't appear in any Disney channel that I've looked at, but that's actually self-sacrificing love. It's yeah. actual love. Um, buying my wife flowers is actually easy to do. Yeah. But now that I've said that, she's going to be listening to this saying, oh, yeah. well then, where yeah. are the flowers? Guys, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>, Susan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there'll have to be some on the way home tonight. But that's easier than getting up in the really oh, messy yeah. times or cleaning up whatever the kids have made a mess of or whatever. So I, I'm suspicious of the attempts to Disney eyes, if you like, um, marriage and relationships, partially because I think, and I think we, we're a little bit guilty of this when we want to restore a healthy understanding of marriage. And we say the theology of the body that John Paul II's mm-hmm. brought us to, the incredible goodness in self-giving love and the goodness of our bodies and the goodness of genuinely good um, physical relationships and intimacy, we want to restore that rather than a sort of an antidote to the prudish view of Christian marriage, which has come from Protestant angles, yep. some Protestant angles, I should say. But in doing so, we're sometimes guilty of idealizing it too much, saying, saying when you get married, everything's going to be wonderful and beautiful and exciting. And In fact, we've had conversations with lots of couples over the years. Sometimes, in one case, I'm thinking of um, they weren't, weren't engaged yet. They were discerning marriage. Right. And they were beautiful couples, fully immersed in the theology of the body, were you know, living the church's teachings to the best of their ability. They were chaste and so on. And they were really struggling because they'd had an argument and right. they were thought that meant <laughs> that they weren't intended for oh each other. Oh my goodness, we're not perfect. Oh dear. <laughs> and we've had couples on the other side of the wedding who yep. have come in and they've had an argument and they're in crisis because they think we've made a mistake. Gosh, and yes. we kind of try to explain to them and say, look, you're not living in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> that we're human beings, we're a work in progress, that marriage is the, really the call of marriage is mm. a pathway to holiness. It's, it's about refining us. And if we're not experiencing a little bit of tension and friction, mm. we're probably not growing either. No. And it's really, we, we like to turn it around, the whole argument thing. We're not saying that you've, that it's a good thing to have these terrible no. shouting, they're abusive. But when there's stress and tension and we're getting on each other's nerves, that's actually growing pains. It and is. They're, they're, we should embrace those as calls to sort of develop our character and our virtue. And, so and I used honor. to ask people in marriage counselling, how did you solve your first argument? And if they said, we haven't argued, I go, oh, we'll come back when you've had an argument and we'll talk about this <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's not so much that how you avoid arguments, but it's how you actually move through them and grow together in that exactly. in that resolution. Yeah. One of the, and of course, just to be clear um, for listeners, we're not talking about any kind of violence or manipulative or abusive or even this sort of passive aggressive kind of violence that happens with words. We're talking about here actually having a disagreement, expressing that frustration in a, in mm-hmm. a constructive way. Sometimes it doesn't come out perfectly, but basically that you can actually wrestle with that problem, come out the other end with forgiveness yes, and love, yes. which it builds on that. I gave a talk once at a youth conference, which uh, was on marriage. And I led with the line, marriage is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Uh, it will take your whole life to get it right. Mm-hmm. Maybe. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and it is also the greatest thing you'll ever do. It's the most rewarding and beautiful and wonderful achievement you'll ever 
manage in your life. It'll be messy and hard and everything about your life should focus on doing this first and everything else is a peripheral. Mm -hmm. I was taken aside by the youth leaders who were quite upset with me and a couple of nuns who were at the conference. You're going to put the young people off marriage. And I said, I hope I put some of them off marriage because <laughs> they're not ready. Yeah. And basically, I, that was the flattest response I've ever had to a talk. The least, you know, clapping, the, the least involvement. They were quite distressed about it. And yet it's the one talk that keeps coming back to me. Ten years later, I'm still getting people contact me who've been married in the meantime and have come back and said, um, yeah, I remember you gave a talk and you said marriage was hard. Can we talk? And basically it's that that's the only place they've heard someone say marriage is a good thing, wow. but it's hard. Because mm -hmm. often people say it's too hard, give up. Yeah. On the other side of it, they say it's wonderful, it's wonderful. You have to kind of put on this sort of Stepford wife kind of mm -hmm. exact you know, perfection or it's disaster. And, and when they've heard someone say it's actually hard, but it's worth doing. Um, it's not a common message. No, it's not. And we've often um, a similar kind of message, but we'll we'll phrase it that you know the culture tells us that marriage is supposed to make us happy. <laughs> yes, and it's true, but just not in the superficial happiness they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, or and we'd say it's not supposed to make you unhappy. <laughs> but if you if you think that marriage itself will make you happy, well, firstly, right. happiness is an inside job. Yeah. So really the way I react and perceive the different circumstances in my life determines my internal happiness much more than the actual yeah. circumstances Because if my happiness is someone brings me a beer every day and then I get to sit and do my own selfish thing every day, I'm going to be a moderately unhappy person no matter what happens. Because the beer will be too warm or whatever, <laughs> you know, it won't be the, the brand you like or to whatever honest, it has to be. None of those things actually fulfil what I what I hope in, in a genuine marriage because yes. the genuine uh, soulmate sort of idea, and I hate using that because it's been commercialised, mm. but basically when you have a, a meeting of persons and a genuine exchange of self-giving, that, that's not the way it works. Yeah. And the the thing that makes us truly happy in a relationship is when we're able to give ourselves to someone else and they receive us yes. as messy yeah. as we are yeah. and then we receive them as messy as they are and it becomes something more beautiful than either of us could have been yeah. by ourselves. We like to take, because the soulmate idea is such a strong uh, feature in our culture, such a, a, a sort of a, an epic goal. <laughs> yes. The, rather than kind of, dismiss it, we'll say that, look, you don't find a soulmate because people have this idea that if they just find the, yes, the perfect the, the person. person, the one that they're intended that to be with, everything, everything will be easy. White horse. <laughs> and it's not so much about finding a soulmate, it's about becoming one. And yep. we become the soulmate by journeying with each other through the triumphs yes. and the difficulties and the challenges and the arguments and everything else. So yeah. we grow into soulmatehood. We don't yeah. discover them. We don't find them. Exactly. In fact, that's, that's probably one of my pet hates with the Disney culture. Yeah. Because the idea of someone just across the horizon, realistically, we probably have only about a couple of hundred people we can meaningfully interact with at any one time. And if we're in a situation, these days the internet gives us the illusion that we're always going to discover someone new and, and I'll look outside my social circle for, for the possibility of finding someone interesting. But in if you're in a village in the old days, you know, the options for your marriage were pretty much who you grew up with and, right. <laughs> and you'd, usually you'd make a pragmatic choice based on those those circumstances. People have sometimes asked me, how did you know that that my wife was your wife was the one? And I said, well, she said I do and I did too. <laughs> and if they say, how did you know before that? I didn't know. I mean, I had a very good all things considered judgment on it and I knew this was the best decision I could make and frankly, the main reason I got married to her was 
I once contemplated living without her and it was horrible. Yeah. I really wanted to, to spend my life with her. But there's no way you can know what you have to do is actually be that person and be yes. the be the yeah. soulmate. I had it relatively easy. I had a spiritual experience <laughs> that made it really clear. <laughs> I don't get many of them, but that was one of them. <laughs> right. Well, for, see, for, it's typical. God knows how we work. But in my case, had he got a beam of sunlight come out of the sky and hit me, I still would have not paid attention. But I actually thought about breaking up with my wife. And um, as I was thinking that through and how that would play out, I went, why am I doing this? I actually really... She's my best friend. And I'm trying to think of the way she could stay my best friend. That No, this isn't going to work. This is not going to work. I'm not going to be able to deal with this. And that realisation was God hitting me around the head going, hey, <laughs> you've got the good thing here. Stay with it. We sometimes get couples that are maybe already engaged and they've got some doubts and they're not sort of sure they're looking for some clarity. And one of the things that we've often suggested, and it's been remarkably successful, we suggest they pray a novena. Right. And what's really interesting... Sorry, for non-Catholic oh, audience, yes. what's a novena? So, so novena is... Usually, well, it can, there's lots of different forms, but it comes from the word nine. Right. So it's nine days or nine weeks. Usually we suggest do a, a nine-day novena and, and it might be dedicated then, to a particular So just to be prayer. clear, it means you play a very short prayer, prayer for nine days in a row. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Pip. Um, and so they'll pray this novena, but what happens over the course of that nine days is that they get in touch with their deepest longings. Right. And so by the time they get to the end of the nine days, um, they know what they want the answer to be, whether right. it's a, a, a negative. And often there is some really clear clarity um, around a symbol or some kind of gesture. So I'll tell you one, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a Go story. Ahead, yeah. So this couple, um, a, a lovely couple, a, a more mature couple, and she was had some doubts. So she was praying the novena. She was a doctor. And she said she, she came home on the ninth day and she still didn't have an answer. And she had this history of four-leaf clovers that she told God, I need a four-leaf clover. That will be the sign. <laughs> so really like specific. Gideon and his fleece. And she said, I got home from work at nine o'clock at night. She said, I got to my apartment and there's this little patch of lawn out the front. And I'm in the dark with a torch looking for a four-leaf clover. <laughs> and I couldn't find one. Right. And she said, and I was devastated, absolutely crushed. Um, but she said, I had this sense of clarity that I really actually did want to pursue this. Right. And so she didn't, the absence of the four-leaf clover didn't um, dissuade her. Right. And in fact, a week later, she was visiting family down in Canberra somewhere and she's on the lawn with her niece sitting on her lap and she's puts her hand out and bang, there's the four leaf clover. <laughs> <laughs> so she got a four leaf clover and she got a confirmation, but it really, a really interesting interaction of faith and, mm. um, in her life of uh, Just her to be cooperation clear, in it and also God responding. I'm going to be a little bit cynical here as an ex-Protestant now Catholic and Exit just about everything actually. Um, I'm a little bit cynical about looking for the such signs. You know, the the saying "God send me a sign" thing. Now, having said that, God has sent me signs, and perhaps it's because of my cynicism that He has to hit me around the head with a board <laughs> when He does. <laughs> but we should. I'm. I guess I'm trying to push against people who are looking for a divine sign to absolve them of the responsibility of making their own decisions. So when a young man's considering a vocation of the priesthood, they often want some kind of beam of light from heaven to tell them this is God's will. And you say, well, God's will was to give you free will. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things about a vocation is it's a call, not a demand. Yep. It's a call to something beautiful and wonderful. And that call means that you have to be free to commit yourself. And if God's demanding you do something, that's not freedom anymore. 
He yeah, can give you know, your common sense and some uh, some signs, etc., could contribute to that that choice. But it still has to be your freedom. And when you do commit it, there's no one else to blame. And I think that's partially mm. what people are afraid of. They realise the seriousness of. Um, the commitment they're about to make and they're almost begging God to take away the responsibility yeah. <laughs> from having to make that choice because yeah. it's because it's my choice. And so many times of, in the marriage, uh, we're celebrating 25 years, not so long ago, and I was thinking back, so many times I've come to just think this is really hard, in fact too hard at some stages. And then I thought, I made this call. Yeah. I made this yeah. decision. I knew it was going to be hard. Buckle down and make yeah. follow through with the will. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think, um, and I could be way off beam here, but um, I've often reflected and thought, you know, our first task in the spiritual life is to learn obedience, right? To learn obedience to God's will. To God, would just like to put that out, not to your husbands and wives. <laughs> oh yes, oh yeah, obedience to God. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, but God doesn't want us. That's a kind of a a, a childlike yes trust and faith that it was you know whatever you want god yep i think he also calls us in as we mature spiritually to go beyond that yes and to enter into a co-responsibility yeah with god so that we're jointly discerning it goes right to the heart i think for couples when they're discerning whether or not to have a baby or another baby yep it's not just whatever god wants yeah. i think god actually calls us to enter into a dialogue with him yes. and to think about well, even at the very partnering with him. Yes. Even at the very beginning, though, Adam and Eve were co-creators with God. Yeah. They were involved in naming, Adam's involved in naming the animals. That's a, that's yes. a who do you name? You name people you've been involved in creating. Yeah. We name our children. But even marriage without children is still a creation because it's the centre of society. The life and love that comes from that relationship ends up forming and, yeah. and contributing to society in ways yeah. that nothing else can. And then the children that are raised within that community, we know that's the best way to form mm -hmm. good citizens, good mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. good uh, healthy people. The caveat on that, though, is that it really is a mature spirituality. If you haven't learnt obedience first, yes. well, then it becomes, well, what do I want? I just do whatever I feel like. Yes. That's not necessarily a holy way no. or a, a good way to live our lives. So if it's, I put a counterpoint yeah. to that, there's two different ways to, to if you like, to absolve yourself of this this will that's required. One is to go, I'll do whatever I want. So my will presumes, presumes everything. So if my wife wants this, yeah, we're going to fight over this or we're going to come to a kind of a, a contract. I'll, I'll give you what you want in this if you give me what I want in here. And that mm -hmm. seems to be what a lot of people fall into. There's mm -hmm. kind of a trade-off. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, the other flip side is, um, and this is the one I'm kind of reacting against, is as if it's all God's fault. I have, I've kind of give up and say, if things don't go right, and I, I'm very guilty of this. Where are you, God? Why isn't yeah. it working out? I've done all. I've ticked all the right boxes. Happiness, please. <laughs> Why haven't I just been gifted happiness? Whereas, in fact, as you said, happiness is very much an internal project. It's yeah. it's a it's something that starts in me in me and gratitude for what I have rather than resentment for what I don't have. And interestingly, the same principles apply within the marriage relationship as it does in our spiritual life. So yeah. I can just kind of say to Byron, "Look, whatever you want." And then it's your fault. You know, I hold, I resent him and hold him accountable whenever yep. anything goes wrong. Or I can say my will rules here, yes. <laughs> my way or the highway. Yeah. And neither of those are a healthy no. way and to run a marriage. It's not a healthy way to And even the, the little bits, sort of the little ways we do this. So, you know, um, sometimes my wife will say, you make the decision and I'll blame you. She says it out loud. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's owning it at least. Yes. And I, okay, well, fair enough. That's clear. It's a kind of an in-joke we have, but... And then at other times I'll just go with her call because it's something I don't 
really. I'm not that fussed about it. And I'll just go with her call and say, well, that's what you wanted. But that's not a, a healthy mechanism because when we're even when we disagree, if you're engaged in a, in a conversation, you genuinely put your reasons on the table and then we go, okay, well, this is the call we are going with. We both own it, um, even if I might have had slightly less emph- emphatic conviction about something. Uh, yeah. It's our thing. We have a little process that we teach on our engaged course and increasingly in our married courses now. It's 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 a process for making couple decisions. Okay. And it's interesting that there's not much about this. Like you get a lot of literature on business decisions, you right. know, win-win and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, it, it's called, we call it values-based decision-making. Okay. And the principle is really simple. It's whenever you've got a disagreement – um, it's not about the topic. It's about the values that you attach to your point of view around that. Right. So say you're an engaged couple and you've got a disagreement over how many guests to have to your wedding. So okay. we can we can speak straight into what they're dealing with right right then and now. The arguments over who's going to be on the guest or how many guests are going to be there. There's often a whole lot of other values that are it's not about the number. It's not about, you know, what number should it be. It's about what are the values. Right. So someone might have a value for a smallish wedding where they know everybody there and it's intimate and they feel connected mm. with all their guests. Somebody else has got a value for this is an important social and family, extended family yep. event and I don't want to hurt anybody by excluding them and so they've got values around those kind of social acceptance. Mm. Well, both of those values are good. And if we connect on the values, they can each reach out and embrace the other's value and mm. find a solution then that honours both values. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a compromise in the middle. It might be that they're going to have two different events. They're going to have a big engagement party and a small wedding yep. or a, you know, a small wedding and a big you know, baptism for their first child or something like that. Whatever that might be that mm. they, they do, they can embrace those, um, those values and come to a, a decision that actually is a true couple decision mm. um, where none, neither of them feel compromised. So if you wanted to call it something else, it would be a win-win-win mm. because we'll say to them that the core value is actually your unity. It's not so about… I would go with you on that and say mm. the core value is unity, but there are some things about my family history which are actually not healthy right? and I need my wife to actually call me on and mm-hmm. say, that's part of your family. And this happens in couples. You don't need to force this, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah. Your, your spouse oh. will tell you, I don't like that about <laughs> what's coming from your family. <laughs> now, and you need your spouse to actually have a fresh pair of eyes and come in and say, I see this coming from your family into you. I am don't like that and it's not healthy. And sometimes I actually, I mean, that hurts because, and this is what you were saying about, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's a con- condemnation of me mm-hmm. and my mm-hmm. history is my family of origin. That's yes. a huge thing in yes. relationships. Stuff that I have assumed is normal because I was raised in that area and that become my normal is critiqued from outside. And that hurts yes. because I love my parents and I love my yeah. family and anything that's supposedly wrong with them, I'm instantly defensive of. But I need that fresh perspective and I need to actually be open enough to go, I can still love my parents and realize, yeah, that's not healthy. Yeah. I now perhaps need to make take something good from another perspective and yes. change my yeah. my way of doing things. Yeah. So, and sometimes it's just different. It might not be necessarily healthy or unhealthy. It's yeah. just this family did it this way, this family. So I'll give you an example. And this compromise is important. Though. Our marriage has been very contentious <laughs> because of the process by which we make decisions. Right. So in okay. my family, very organised, you get the information, you make a decision, you lock it in, you get organised, right? Reduce stress, reduce yep. complications, simple, get it done. 
Byron's family, they'd keep your options open. Right. So he, he, he often now, says- hang on. Does he keep his options open or he just doesn't like planning? No, he keeps his, he's playing right. the options. Okay. He, he's, he's, and, and his dad's very much along those lines. Right. It's like, well, if you don't need to commit yet, why would you? Right. right. What the, you know, there, there might be a more optimal. Don't close the doors. Don't close the doors. Right. Um, his mom, he'll say, is, you know, as, as anxious about decisions. So she's happy. She, even if she makes a decision, she's always second guessing it anyway. So right. I drew this picture, which my mom dug out, they were going through their stuff and they dug it out, they gave it to me the other day that I drew when we were engaged and it's a little stick figure of me in the middle with my arms outstretched <laughs> on either side and Byron and his family on one side saying, keep your options open <laughs> and mum and dad on the other saying, can you please make a decision? We've got to book a reception centre. And we seriously, we only had a six month engagement. We didn't commit to a date for three months. <laughs> it was like, it's going to be the Saturday or the Sunday or maybe the week after. I kid you not. <laughs> so it was, and it's been the story of my life, this sort of in between these two tensions and, on, yeah. and every decision therefore becomes an yeah. argument about how we're making the decision, but yeah. not just about what the decision is. It, it's actually, it's very much in my marriage too, is I prefer not to bind myself to particular arrangements. Mm -hmm. I do it in my workplace, I'm very organized, but when I get into my space, I like to have the freedom to do, to wake up and go, I think I'll go and play soccer today, or I think I'll go and do some shopping, or I'll go and just sit and read a book. It's your spontaneous side. <laughs> Possibly, um, but I know I have some friends who organise their free time because they would feel very uncomfortable if it wasn't organised. Mm -hmm. And so when I travel, I prefer just to make it up as I go along and my wife gets very, very nervous and unless I have booked every step of the way. <laughs> and so the, the compromise we've come to is that we will schedule time which is non-organized <laughs> kind of where, where I don't have to have a plan but it's planned that I don't have a plan so she, she <laughs> whatever works for you Peter <laughs> Indeed. it's just I mean when I'm in work disorganization is pain in in, mm. in a business environment so you have to be organized um but when I'm when I'm relaxing, I can't do it to a schedule. I just yeah, don't like yeah. it. But having said that, her family will sit at the Christmas dinner table and plan next Christmas. So, oh goodness, yes, <laughs> I'm not I'm not in that zone, and I yeah. I find it I like I like to just relax and have a family great yeah. Christmas dinner. But when we're planning next Christmas, this is their idea of fun, and they feel <laughs> happy about this. Whereas I'm it's, it winds me up. Having said that, let's talk a little bit about these are kind of there's small differences in marriage which are easy to overcome with decent communication and, mm -hmm. and problem solving. But there, we have to look at the reality of some people are actually in quite destructive marriages um, mm -hmm. when people either aren't mature enough or they're hurt from their past or even the marriage itself, so hurt that they, they get to a point where it's self, it's so mutually destructive to be together that they can't actually exist um, in the same place without hurting each other constantly. Mm -hmm. And so they separate. I... I, I'm torn about this one because separation is too quick to be diagnosed by our our yeah. marriage doctors these days, and there's almost no way. It's funny. Sometimes I feel like I'd like to say to people, "Look, just it's time to take a a, a mature pill and actually yeah. just grow up a little bit and mm -hmm. and say, "All right, we have to start from scratch. We have to start over. Mm -hmm. Forgive these things and move on." But when the hurt's too big, yeah. You get to a stage where, what, is, what do Catholics have to say in this situation? Well, a couple of thoughts. Um, firstly, that recognising the reality that sometimes a marriage gets into such a state of toxicity that we're constantly triggering each other. Yeah. And 
um, it's it's we're so reactive that we can't think rationally. In those circumstances, I think a period of controlled separation, right? Not a trial separation. There's a difference, but a con- period of controlled separation. Yep. So that we're getting away from being triggered all the time to yep. give us some emotional space to deal with our own stuff. But the point is there, you say control, because there's built into that separation an actual mechanism for working through the problems? Working through the problems and eventually with a goal to eventually reuniting. Right. A trial separation is kind of like a different sort of thing where we say, hey, it's not working out. Let's pretend to be divorced and see if we like it better. And, and when you've been constantly and at each other and it hurts so much in a relationship and you separate, of course it's going to feel slightly it's better. It's going to feel better because you're not triggering each other all the time. Right. So that's kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, whereas a controlled separation should be done in collaboration with a therapist or counsellor mm. who can help mediate. And you need to think through the terms. So yep. we, you know, who's going to move out? Where are we going to live? What about looking after the children and our shared responsibilities? Yep. Um, what are we going to do during that time? Yep. You know, what are the rules around? How often are we going to see each other? Yep. Are we going to date each other again? Um, yep. What what actions are we going to undertake for our self healing and yep. so on? So and I you need some advice on that because you, if oh, you're in you, that state, you're not in a good state to make you, a decision. You need to have a professional to help you navigate that. Right. It's not going to be um, the sort of thing that you can just, you, you know, you, you can't stand to be in the same room with each other. How are you going to facilitate that yeah. negotiation? So or even that, want to. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So, and we've we've worked with couples. Actually, they were both had individual counsellors and um, um, he had some um, addiction issues. I think it was marijuana and right. they might have had four children or they had a fourth one on the way um, and they'd had this sort of period of controlled separation and now they were looking at, okay, we're ready to come back together again. Right. We've got his addiction under control. What's going to be different about the way we reform yeah. this marriage going forward yeah. so that we don't get into trouble? So they had referred them to us and we spent you know, a number of sessions with them to teach them some specific skills around resetting their relationship mm-hmm. patterns. And I think that's we could do with a lot more of that in the Catholic yes. community, this sort of collaboration between the professional counselling and the marriage education. Mm. Um, and particularly, I think, um, I, I, I guess I default in marriage education. I mean, technically anybody can teach relationship skills, but I think there's a certain power that comes through when a couple does it. Right. Facilitates it together because they're bringing the witness of their sacrament. You're firstly getting the, the masculine and the feminine perspective. So you've got balance on that. Um, but you've also just got the charisms of the sacrament. The, their relationship is being lived out before the client couple's eyes. Right. And so they're getting that role modeling, but they're also experiencing the love of God that inhabits the space between them and experiencing that, like you're welcoming them, in, particularly if you can welcome them in your home. Yeah. That's sort of like the domestic church. Um, I've often said that, you know, it's a bit like the difference between, you know, meeting a couple in their home. It's like going to see the animals at a zoo versus seeing them on safari. <laughs> you know, you see them in their native habitat. It's yep. a different environment yep. where, you know, there's their children and their unpaid bills on the counter and yep. all that sort of stuff that's part of married life becomes part of the ministry yeah. that you're bringing to this So what we're talking about there is that the, the important role that even non-professional, and this is mm-hmm. key for all our listeners here, there's a professional role of there's quite a, a a lot of training and skill that goes into facilitating a dispute resolution and those sort mm-hmm. of things but there's a huge role for ordinary catholics to play mm-hmm. if we get into this to subject area francine we're going to be going for another whole episode in fact um would you be willing to come back for another episode and talk about the practical things that ordinary people can do in 
Oh, absolutely. One Excellent. of our f- favourite subjects. And I'm, I might even have Byron in the country at that time. So <laughs> you'd have both of us. That would be lovely. Absolutely. But that's enough for this week's episode. We'll come back to this in another episode. Today's discussion got you thinking, arguing with your podcast device. Let us know. You can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au or on any of your podcast apps. Tell us what you liked or what you didn't like at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au or Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Discord or any of the places you can find us or look at the show notes on our website for details. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that's a great idea, an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. Time for a shout out, Francine. I've got two couples I'd like to shout out. One's um, a couple just newly married last week or the week before, Nick and Shakri. Um, and the other is a couple we're preparing for marriage. Again, another Nick, Nick and Genevieve. Lovely. So. I'll shout out to my own wife who's put up with me for 25 years and that's, <laughs> that's some task. Uh, that's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life. Mm-hmm.